My name is Don Helton, and I have the privilege of shepherding high school and junior high students here at College Park Church. It's a great day, uh, opportunity for me to preach here. It's a great day on a number of other fronts. Uh, today is my 17th wedding anniversary, and so that's, uh, that's good. I will tell my wife you clapped for us. Uh, she will be here in the next service. Um, my parents and her parents will, will be with us as well. They're coming up from Kentucky. It's my parents' 42nd wedding anniversary. Uh, we got married on their 25th. Yeah, we thought that was sweet too. And um, so there's just a, a lot going on. All this after a really warm week. Uh, I've, I've given up on watering the grass because it just was evaporating before it hit the ground. Uh, took a group of almost 100 of us from the youth ministry to Kings Island earlier this week. Brilliant. <laughs> Kings Island itself is already a heat magnet of asphalt and metal. And uh, so that's, that's how that, that went. It's actually in view of that water imagery that studying Psalm 42 and 43 over the past few weeks has made a lot of sense, at least at the beginning. I love to hike, um, got to do it all over the world. Really, about the favorite place that I like to go is the Red River Gorge in eastern Kentucky. Uh, it's easy to find water there because in backpacking, finding water is essential for what you need to do. And if you're going to be gone more than a day, knowing how to replenish your water supply is vital. Um, it's really easy if you're a fan of Man vs. Wild and Bear Grylls. You know how to find water wherever you go. You go downhill. It's easy to do in the gorge because you're always going up or down. There's nothing flat in eastern Kentucky. And so in doing that, it's easy to find water. But when you're in one of those little streams that can be so life-giving, you have to be careful. Because if a storm comes, what is a little channel for water can become a corridor for a flood very quickly with a flash flood. And so what is a life-giving stream can end up becoming a life-threatening force. Your friend seemingly can become your foe. This sort of water imagery might get us close to what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 42 and 43. But more on water and streams and torrents in a moment. Our scripture passage for today, more importantly, raises and also answers some really gut-wrenching questions. For instance, have you ever felt powerless to pull out of your own ongoing spiritual downward spiral? How do you respond when feeling forgotten or rejected by God? How can you deal with spiritual depression? Or in the words of the psalmist, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Join me in prayer. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my strength and my redeemer. I pray, Father, by your spirit that you would teach us your word, that you would glorify the Son, that you would edify the church, and that you would rescue the hurting. Thank you for an all-sufficient word which points to an all-sufficient Savior. Help us now in these moments. Amen. All right. First, what I'd like to do is to step into the text of Psalm 
42, Psalm 43, and to look at the then. What was going on then? Next, what we'll do is we'll look at the always, some principles from the text. And finally, we'll center in on some application of the now. So first, then, the text of Psalms 42 and 43. Look in your Bible or in your notes, and let's just notice some highlights. One, this is a psalm, an instructional psalm, or a psalm that needs to be played skillfully. That's what the word masculine means there in the heading. By the sons of Korah. Three or four sons, these were, these were Levites that specialized in songwriting and song leading. They were the worship leaders for the people of Israel at the temple. The temple being the special place of God's manifest presence where offerings were brought, sacrifices were made, and the people worshiped God because in the holy of holies, the inner part of the inner part of the temple is where God's presence was. And the people through mediators called priests were able to connect to and worship God. And so that's who the sons of Korah, they are musical priests. And this is what they write. They write about an intense longing for God. Notice, deers are panting. The deer are panting for streams. The soul is thirsty. We don't know the specific situation that's going on in this passage, but the psalmist is on the run. The psalmist is in trouble. The psalmist has opponents and oppressors. He has taunters and mockers. And he wants God. He wants the living God. He wants to be able to appear before God. Appear could be uttered also to see the face of God. He feels cut off from God's presence. He is far from Jerusalem as we're going to see. There's an incredible water motif. Notice streams in verse 1, thirst in verse 2, tears in verse 3, pouring verse 4. Verse 7, there's roaring waterfalls and breaking waves. People are asking, where is your God? Notice verse 3 and verse 10. Maybe he's been kidnapped. Maybe he's on the run. Maybe he's in exile. We don't know what's going on. But he is separated from Jerusalem. He's separated from God's people. And he longs to connect to God by worshiping with God's people. Notice verse 4. He wants to go with the, the crowd of people and lead them in procession to the house of God. He just wasn't one to do this as a solemn act. This is going to be a party. Glad shouts, songs of prayed, a multitude-keeping festival. This is going to be one big worship party. It's what he longs for. It's the way he connects with God. It's the way the people connect with God. And yet he's distant from them. He's about 120 miles away. If you notice in verse 5, he's remembering God from the land of Jordan. That means the source of the Jordan River, which is up in the mountains of Hermon. And he himself is riding from Mount Mazar, perhaps, or can view Mount Mazar, which Mount Mazar just means Mount Tiny. He's like mocking the small little mountain. And so he sees from the peaks of Hermon, he sees the small hill, and he says, God, I've got to remember you from here because I don't get to meet with you, with your people. There is a feeling of overwhelmed chaos being acted upon by an outside force. Verse 7, it says deep calls to deep. This is probably a reference to Genesis chapter 1 where there was darkness and chaos and no form over the, the face of the deep. It's just water that's unknowable. It's mysterious. He is in the midst of turmoil. It's turbulent. There's a roar of waterfalls. Now, we love going to waterfalls, but this is not what he's looking for. He's looking for a stream that nourishes. 
It'd be like, God, you're magnificent and I need life-giving water from you, but all I've got is full-on pressure from a fire hose. I can't take you in. And instead of nourishing me and comforting and soothing me, your breakers are, are crashing over me. I wanted to wade in the pool and I'm on high seas. And yet in the midst of this breaking wave and crashing turbulence, he says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. That's his said, that's covenantal love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he sees that even though God is mysterious and cannot be fully understood, that there are parts of God that are overwhelming him, that he is still going to worship God. He has to deal with what people are saying to him. When he says in verse 10 that there are deadly wounds in my bones when my adversaries taunt me, literally in Hebrew he's saying it is like a slain in my bones. It's beyond a mere flesh wound. This goes to the core of who he is. Because what we find out is when they are saying, where is your God, verse 10? Where is your God, verse 11? He is feeling in verse 9, God, why have you forgotten me? He feels rejected. Look at 43, verse 2. This is a man who is overwhelmed. He is going about mourning because the oppression of the enemy and a separation from the people of God, separation from the worship of God. Now there's a refrain that you see three times in these two Psalms. 5 and 11 of 42 and then 5 again of 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? The psalmist like any good artist, is aware of his feelings, is self-reflective, self-examining, is processing what he's going through. And he can't, can't adjust himself to having a soul that's not at peace, a soul that's depressed. He says he's going to hope in God. We get it three times, five, eleven, and five again. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. This is a statement of hope. It's a statement of belief. He is separated from God's people. He's separated from God's presence in the temple, but he believes that God will see him through. And while feeling forgotten and rejected, a day is coming when he will reunite with God's people. He will be in the presence of God and he will get to sing praise again. He wants God to send his light and his truth. 43, three, he wants the light and truth of God to lead him This is in distinction from the darkness and deceit. He wants God to vindicate him and defend him, verse 1. He wants God to both be his judge who rules in his favor, as well as the defense attorney arguing the case. He wants to be brought to the holy hill of God. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go to the temple where God dwells. And when there, 43, 4, he will be able to go to the altar of God Make sacrifice where God will be seen as his exceeding joy. And he's going to praise him with the lyre, a small musical instrument. And that is the then of the passage. 
gives you a little bit of the flavor of what he's thinking, some of the geography in the passage. You, you pick up some of the poetry. Their poetry isn't based on rhyme as much as it is parallelism and imagery. And that translates very well into English. And so here we are. Well, if, if that's the then of the passage, we would understand why Spurgeon described the psalm like this, to put, to put it in a nutshell. This is the cry of a man far removed from the outward ordinances and worship of God. Sighing for the long-loved house of God. And at the same time, it is the voice of a spiritual believer. Under depressions, longing for the renewal of the divine presence. Struggling with doubts and fears, yet holding his ground by faith in the living God. That's the then. I'd like now to go to the always What are some of the principles we see from this passage? What are principles we see in Psalms 42, 43? The first one is this. Is that in the mire of difficulty and depression, the greatest comfort is the presence of God. The intense longing of our hearts is satisfied by the glorious person and atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. It is the gospel That is God's greatest gift to us because in the gospel, God gives us the greatest gift, namely himself. Notice how the psalmist calls God his salvation in 5.11 and 5 again. Notice how he calls God not just his joy in 43.4, but my exceeding joy. The psalmist just doesn't see God as the provider of salvation and joy. The son of Korah sees God as his salvation and as his joy. He is not just looking to God to be the giver of good things. He is looking to God as the good thing. In the midst of difficulty, in the mire of depression, the greatest comfort is the presence of God. Now, while he does ask for vindication and he asks for defense, more than anything, the psalmist says, God, I need you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I need you. Like an animal being chased by pursuers, like a person being chased to be killed, I need you the way a dying man needs a thirsty, thirst-quenching drink from a living stream. I want you to see here in Psalm 43 alone, how Jesus is foreshadowed so beautifully. The psalmist in 3 asks for God to send his light and his truth. And so then when we get to the Gospel of John, we should not be surprised to read in John 3.16 that the Father sent the Son. That in John 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. In John 14, Jesus says he is the truth. And just to blow us all away, it is Jesus that says, I am the living water. Jesus is playing in his speaking right off of Psalm 42 and 43. He's saying, you're looking for deliverance from God. You're looking for vindication. You're looking for comfort. You're looking to be pulled out of your situation. It's me. It's me. John Piper put it this way. In his book, The Gospel, or God is the Gospel. The Gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. The Gospel is a way of overcoming every obstacle to 
everlasting joy in God. Now, of course, the gospel is a way to get people to heaven. I sometimes wonder if the way we talk about heaven, if people would be totally happy to go to heaven if God wasn't there. They just want to be removed from the difficulties and trials of this life. They just don't want something bad to happen. But God is the gospel because in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of depression, God's presence is the greatest comfort. The psalmist is longing for God. He doesn't quite have a full picture, but on this side of the cross, we're able to recognize what this psalmist is longing for in his spiritual depression is exactly what we need to call on in our spiritual depression, which is God, Father, give me Jesus. I don't need this world anymore. The world's my enemy. It's never been my friend. Give me Jesus. A second principle that I see here is that joy is reclaimed by examining the causes of spiritual depression, by embracing the certainties and the mysteries of God, and in preaching the truth to yourself. Joy is reclaimed first by examining the causes of spiritual depression. We see them here. He feels disconnected from God. He's not able to worship. He's being mocked by other people. He feels forgotten and rejected by God himself. This has led to a spiritual depression. It's not in the passage, so we will not spend a lot of time on it, but it is noteworthy to mention that unconfessed sin is also a possible cause for spiritual depression. Other Psalms talk about how our bones waste away. We're eaten alive from the inside because of our own iniquity. Examining the causes of spiritual depression is important, but we certainly would not want to stay there. There's also a need to preach to ourselves. Um, In in talking to students about how they struggle spiritually, students are no different than us. They often wrestle with a spiritual depression. And they keep on telling me about how they feel. May I offer this suggestion to you like I do to them Perhaps what you need to do from time to time is instead of letting your heart tell your mind what to think, I would suggest having your mind tell your heart what to feel. Or to put it in the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The psalmist treatment was this. He starts talking to himself. Why art thou downcast, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. It is so easy in the midst of a depression to feel like you are just being churned by the waves of things that happen to you. And there certainly are things in life that are outside of our control. The psalmist will attest to that. But just because everything, just because you can't control everything, doesn't mean you can't control some things. And so here we find the psalmist in the midst of his depression, rehearsing to himself particular themes of God. Even though he is being, he is willing to admit, God, I feel forgotten and rejected by you. Yet I still have a very high view of you and you are my only hope. Notice this, verse 1, God, I want you. 
Verse 2, I thirst for you. What truth do you preach to yourself? Try verse 3, I want to be with you. Verse 4, I long to celebrate you. Verse 5, my hope is in you. You are my hope. Even if I'm from afar, I'm going to remember you. I'm not going to stop for thinking about you. Verse 7, I'm overwhelmed by you. And verse 8, I'm comforted by you. What truth do you preach to yourself? You preach to yourself who God is. The psalmist calls us to live with a balanced view of God, a God who is described both as a life-satisfying flowing stream, verse 1, and as an overwhelmingly turbulent crashing wave, verse 7. Theologians talk about this in terms of the imminence and transcendence of God. Imminence is that he's close, he's loving, he's comforting and compassionate. And he's transcendent, which means we're distant from him. We are creatures. He is the creator. He is beyond us. He is wholly other. One way to deal with spiritual depression is to embrace both the mysterious silence and the steadfast love of the Lord Almighty. Sometimes we feel that God is not there. It's one thing to feel rejected by God, but many in our day would say, if there is difficulty, it's perhaps because God is not there. That difficulty in this life is somehow a proof for atheism. There's much to be said about this in the defense of the existence of God. Uh, Two resources I would point you to, notes at the end of the handout, is one is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, as well as an online resource called the Veritas Forum. Well, I won't go into a defense of God's existence, but I'd like to quote Switchfoot in saying, the shadow proves the sunshine. That when we are in a dark period, we only know it's dark because we've experienced the light. Difficulty does not mean God doesn't exist. Difficulty simply means we don't understand him. More on that in a moment. But we live in a culture that demands for a domesticated deity. An American so-called God of ease, safety, and predictability. We are shocked, if not repulsed, by a God who will not conform to our demands for safety. But who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, said Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When troubles come, people attack and doubts arise. Run to God, not from him. While you may not understand his ways, you can trust him. Don't don't fight against him. In the words of the great theologian Johnny Cash, I have found my arms too short to box with God. Another psalm says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Don't run from him. Run to him. You don't need him less now. Third principle I see And it's not in the text, but it is foreshadowed by the text. It alludes to something greater. And it is that Jesus is the supreme example of being mocked by his opponents, separated from the worshiping community, and feeling rejected by God. His suffering and consequent victory paved the way for our hope 
They pave the way for our worship and they pave the way for our trust in our Heavenly Father. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 20 and following, we are commended to look to Christ because Christ suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and neither was there deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you, for me, for us. We were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Trust God. Don't return hurt for hurt, harsh word for harsh word. Jesus has been through it and a whole lot worse. Learn from him, be encouraged by him, and in the end, fall down on your knees and worship him. I do have some closing points of application. Uh, There are a few, but we will move through them quickly. What is application from Psalms 42 and 43? One is to be honest. Be honest about how you are feeling spiritually. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. And be honest with other believers. This is a psalm where the, the writer is honest with himself. He's aware of his words. He's directing them to God. And then he puts this forth. His struggle, his feelings, his highs and his lows, he puts forth right into the worshiping community with other believers. You've already heard about the importance of small groups and live 12. So I simply say, you need to be a part of some group where you can share the ups and downs. Depression thrives in isolation. You need each other. Second application, desire God more than anything. I find it interesting that the psalmist doesn't really say, get me out of here, but rather he says, I need you. He desires God more than anything. He wants vindication. He wants defense. But he wants God. This idea of longing for God, even once you're already a Christian, might come as new to you. A.W. Tozer wrote about this in his book, The Pursuit of God. To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. If God's presence is the greatest comfort in difficulty and depression, then we must long for Christ to be here. You must long for him in your life. Spiritual depression is real. You must fight it. It feels overwhelming. But I will tell you, God is worth it. Third application point says that you should pray for light in the darkness and truth in chaos. We need to know the path to go, truth, in the confusion We need to see our way light in a myriad of options. 
This is not a prayer of escape. It's a prayer of purpose. And it's a prayer for presence. Not just take me out of the situation, but a prayer that says take me to Jesus. So pray that the Father and the Spirit will give you the knowledge and the clarity to get to Jesus. Embrace the gospel in the midst of your depression. That's the hope. Hope in God. Depression works not only by isolating you from people, but depression works by having you look at yourself. You are not your solution. It is one thing to recognize your situation, but you need to look outside of yourself. And this is how the gospel works so beautifully. Our culture, in a world of self-esteem, pop psychology, talk shows, we will hear that the problem is outside of you, And the solution is inside of you. But the gospel trumps all the half-truths and full lies of our world. Because here's the truth. The truth is the problem is inside of us. The solution is outside of us. Theologians call it alien righteousness. It is the perfection of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Look to his body. Look to Jesus Look to the fellowship of the church. And that is the fourth point I wish to make, that we should prioritize participation in congregational worship gatherings. Really is kind of like preaching to the choir, telling people at church to come to church. But it's so easy in the midst of feeling down to not want to be with people and to not want to hear the truth. But in the words of Hebrews 10, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, he is faithful. And let us consider how we may stir one another on to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The psalmist was depressed because he couldn't be worshiping the Lord with God's people. He longed to meet with God and he knew the power of God's people gathering to sing God's praises. Fifth application point. In looking at the psalm, I'd have to say we all need to see a need to broaden our emotional bandwidth when it comes to worship. In these two psalms, here are the emotions that are put forth as a part of worship. Desperation, longing, contemplation, contemplation, sadness, shouting, happiness, Partying, I mean, excuse me, holding festival. (laughs) Conviction, hope, mystery, intimacy, strength, justice, joy, and determination. In traveling around the world and worshiping with other Christians of other cultures, I've concluded I am far too reserved in both my celebration and in my mourning. Sixth, deepen your understanding of God's attributes and his goals. The connection between the skit and our passage this morning is that we must be rehearsed in the various themes of God if we are going to survive the trials of life. Because once you're in the trial, rehearsal's over. We need to know more fully what God is like and what he intends to accomplish in our lives. It is in that that makes adversity bearable and even joyful. In Romans 8, we know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For the purpose of those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
In James 1, we are told to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Having let the steadfastness have its full effect, you will become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's what I'd say about understanding who God is and what he's calling us to. Is that the triune God is the perfect harmony of knowledge, power, and love. You can trust the sovereign Lord. Whatever the Father providentially causes or permits in your life is for the purpose of making you more like the Son through the sanctifying indwelling of the Spirit. A deeper knowledge of God's character and a deeper knowledge of God's goals yield a dividend of spiritual perspective and spiritual perseverance. God is about making you more like His Son. And so therefore, my seventh point for application is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as your perfection. Look to Jesus as your example. Look to Jesus as your comfort, your encouragement, your way, and your destination. The psalmist was cut off from being able to worship with God's people. He was cut off from the manifest presence of God at the temple. But in Christ, we have no such limitation. Because in the gospel, we no longer have to go to a specific... In the gospel, we no longer need to get to a specific point geographically to worship God. Because in the gospel, God has come to us. And then when the Son, who through His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His validating resurrection, ascended back to the Father and sat down because He is finished, He gave a better comforter. God is with us. Jesus is the temple. We don't have to go to a building anymore. We come to this building so we gather with God's people. We are the small stones, the living stones, of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We gather together to remind ourselves that life is tough, spiritual depression is real, but God is our hope. And whereas the psalmist had to say, one day I will praise God again, we are able to, by the indwelling spirit and a victorious Christ, to say, I worship God now. No matter what enemies may do to us, what adversities may come, what sickness may befall you, you are never separated from God. The gospel trumps the limitations of the Old Testament, and now God is with his people. We are a part of his temple, and we forever will be with our Lord. In the mire of difficulty and depression, the greatest comfort is the presence of God. The intense longing of our hearts, the panting of our souls, is satisfied by the glorious person and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, God gives us the greatest gift, himself. And Father, I pray that we would see the greatness of Jesus that we would trust you even in the midst of crashing waves. And I pray that we would run to Jesus because he's the living water. He is the truth. He is the life. He is our hope and truly our exceeding joy. Amen.